Section 63 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey DeSena, Coeur d'Alene. Chapter 17, The Scandinavian North, by the Reverend W. E. Collins, Part 1. The Scandinavian nations had entered somewhat late into the general stream of European history, and at the beginning of the sixteenth century were still not a little behind the rest of Western Europe in civilization. But they were early brought into contact with the Reformation movement, and nowhere were its effects more generally felt or more far-reaching. In order to see you to what extent this was the case, some attention must be paid to their earlier history. It was not till the 10th century that Denmark, Norway, and Sweden began to exist as single monarchies, and it was under their early kings that Christianity, first introduced some time previously, came to be the religion of all their people. From this time forward, although they were frequently devastated and rent asunder by internal warfare, the three kingdoms may be said to have had taken their part, each in its own way, in European history. The Swedes, pressed by their heathen neighbours to the north and northeast, were at first unable to make much headway. The Norwegians, fully occupied by their activities beyond the seas, in Iceland, in parts of Scotland and Ireland, and even in faraway Greenland, never acquired much strength at home. Denmark was usually the most powerful kingdom of the three. Under the kings of the Estritsen line, the Danes vindicated their independence of the empire and conquered large territories from the heathen events and Estonians on the shores of the Baltic. In fact, there was a time under Valdemar the Victorious, 1204-41, when the Baltic was to all intents and purposes a Danish lake. But the capture and imprisonment of Valdemar by Count Henry of Schwerin gave a blow to their power from which it never recovered. The increasing influence of the Teutonic Knights and the Livonian Knights of the Sword on the one hand and the rapid advance of Sweden under its Folkung dynasty on the other, still further shattered it. The Danes were further hampered by the commercial and naval rivalry of the Hanseatic League and by frequent border warfare with the Duchy of Holstein. Altogether, it looked for a time as though Sweden must take the place of Denmark as the chief power of the north. But although the Swedes gradually extended their sway over Delicalia and Finland, their further extension was prevented by the advance of the Russians of Novgorod to the shores of the Gulf of Finland, and thus the peoples of the north were once more thrown back upon themselves. After several unsuccessful attempts at dynastic union, the three kingdoms were at length united. In 1363, Voldemar III, Otterdog of Denmark, had given his daughter Margaret in marriage to Håkon of Norway, and Margaret became the real ruler of both realms in the name of her son. At the same time, she laid claim to the crown of Sweden in right of her late husband Håkon, and, although the claim was at first very shadowy, it became formidable when the Swedish nobles espoused her cause. The king, Albert of Mecklenburg, was defeated and made prisoner at the Battle of Falsping, and the Treaty of Lindholm, 1393, left her undisputed mistress of Sweden. Thus the three realms were united under Queen Margaret, for her son Olaf had died in 1387. The personal union before long became a constitutional one. In 1397, Margaret caused her grand-nephew, Eric, to be crowned king at Kalmar, and on that occasion there was concluded, by nobles representing the three kingdoms, 
the famous Union of Kalmar, by which Sweden, Norway, and Denmark were declared to be forever united under one king, each retaining its own laws and customs. But the Union was not regularly promulgated or made widely known. Its terms were vague and indefinite, and they opened up more questions than they solved. It was provided that a son of the reigning king should be chosen if possible, but nothing was said as to the method by which the three kingdoms were to participate in the election. It was provided that all should take up arms against the general enemy, but no reference was made to the carrying out of projects which concerned only one of the three. It is plain that nothing but pressing common interests or a strong ruler could render such an agreement permanent, and this was precisely what was wanting. On the one hand, Erik and his successors really ruled in the interests of Denmark. On the other, the condition of Sweden, practically one of anarchy, made any settled government well-nigh impossible. Revolts were of frequent occurrence, and before long the Danish governors were driven out, and Karl Knudsen, the leader of the higher nobility, became administrator, Riksförestandere, of Sweden. On the accession of the House of Oldenburg, to the throne of Denmark in 1448, Karl Knudsen was proclaimed King of Sweden, and soon afterwards of Norway also. Christian I soon regained his hold over the latter realm, but from this time forward the Danish kings were seldom able to make good their claims over Sweden, which continued to be ruled by Swedish administrators until 1520, when the death of Sten Sture the Younger placed Sweden for the moment entirely in the hands of Christian II of Denmark. On the other hand, the Oldenburg line had gained ground elsewhere. In 1416, Christian I was chosen as Duke of Schleswig and Count of Holstein, but the great revolt of the Dietmarsh peasants ending in the destruction of the Danish army with two counts of Oldenburg and the flower of the Schleswig-Holstein nobility in 1500 further weakened the Danish throne and indirectly helped to break up the Union of Kalmar. The general effect of the changes which had taken place in the Scandinavian kingdom since the 12th century had been to strengthen the power of the nobles at the expense of the king and of the bunder, or free peasants. Neither in Denmark nor in Sweden was there a law of heredity, and every election was secured at the cost of a capitulation, which involved a certain weakening of the royal prerogative. In order to obviate the evils of a disputed succession, the kings frequently attempted to secure an election in their own lifetime and left large appanages to their younger sons, with the result that the effort to transform these personal fiefs into hereditary possessions often led to civil wars, and still further weakened the crown. Under pressure from the nobles, the royal castles were step by step demolished everywhere, and the royal domain was gradually encroached upon. The Riksråd, or council state, consisting entirely of the nobles and the higher clergy, altogether supplanted the ancient assemblies of the people as the final legislative authority. In Sweden, King Albert, Count of Mecklenburg, was little more than the president of this council. Even in Denmark, things were not much better, and they did not improve. Under the Oldenburg kings, the court was German rather than Danish, and its influence was none the greater on that account. Nor, owing to the privileges of the Hanseatic towns, was there a great merchant class to act as a counterpoise to the nobles. And as for the Bunder, Formerly the most important class of all, their condition was pitiable indeed. By degrees their rights were encroached upon, till, from free and noble-born, small proprietors, they became mere peasants. In Denmark they were at length compelled to have recourse to the practice of commendation, which ended in the latter part of the fifteenth century in a widespread system of serfage. The power of the clergy had grown pari passu with that of the nobles, 
down to the twelfth century indeed the scandinavian bishops were only suffragans to the see of bremen it was not till eleven o four that the see of lund in the danish province of skorna was raised to metropolitical rank with jurisdiction over all the bishoprics of the three kingdoms and it was only in eleven fifty two that the famous mission took place of the cardinal of albano nicholas breakspear afterwards pope adrian the fourth which gave to the northern churches their permanent character under his guidance nidaros tronium was made the metropolitical see of norway and soon afterwards upsala was raised to a similar position in sweden the repayment of romascat was introduced and the ecclesiastical system of the northern nations was remodelled on the lines which prevailed at the time in other parts of western christendom though it was not until twelve fifty that a papal bull took the choice of the bishops from the people and gave it to the chapters from this time forward the powers and the riches of the clergy had rapidly increased they held large fiefs in all three countries it is said that more than half of denmark was in the hands of the bishops and copenhagen itself was built on a fief of the bishop of rochilda their possessions like those of the nobles were exempt from taxation nor were they liable to the same restrictions with regard to trade as the people at large with some conspicuous exceptions they were not less opposed to the kings than were the nobles quarrels respecting clerical immunities were frequent and they generally ended in the infliction of ecclesiastical censures followed by the surrender of the king at discretion and the payment of an indemnity as a rule the higher clergy had been trained abroad and were not less foreign in feeling and in sympathies than the court itself owing partly to the difficulties in securing confirmation at rome partly to the exaggerated importance that was attached to their civil and constitutional functions bishops elect frequently remained unconsecrated for years the spiritual functions being carried out by others naturally abuses were far from uncommon amongst them and there was not much love lost between them and the people at large indeed the success of the reformation both in denmark and in sweden was largely due to the fact that it put an end to the power of the clergy and despoiled them of their possessions one the reformation in denmark the accession of christian the second in fifteen thirteen marks the beginning of a new era a man of great natural gifts but violent passions his father had given him an education which at once developed his love for the people and his self-love and at the time made him one of the most learned monarchs of the day he was sent to norway to put down a rebellion in fifteen o two and as regent there he received his apprenticeship in government during a season of turbulent years his marriage in fifteen fifteen with isabella sister of the future emperor charles v obtained for him an influence in europe such as for centuries no other king of denmark had enjoyed but he was cruel and treacherous both by nature and of deliberate policy these characteristics had already shown themselves in norway they were present throughout his reign and after ten years they helped to drive him from his beloved denmark thus although he introduced many notable changes he himself was overthrown by the reaction to which they gave rise and they were only carried out in their entirety by others after his downfall christian had himself reconquered norway for his father at his own accession he found sweden practically independent on the death of the administrator svante Sture in fifteen twelve the riksråd had chosen the old erik trolle in his place and had decided in favour of union with denmark but a popular party led by hemingard the bishop of linshaping had risen against him and set up Stensture, the younger, in his stead, who, being a wise and statesmanlike leader, soon obtained the upper hand. There was still a strong party opposed to him, however, under the leadership of Gustav, the son of Erik Troller, and Archbishop of Uppsala. 
in the course of the civil war which followed gustav was besieged in his castle at stackerbory near stockholm he at once appealed to the danes for help and his assailants were excommunicated by archbishop burger of lund by virtue of the authority which he claimed as primate of scandinavia thereupon stensture and Riksrod resolved that Troller should be no longer recognized as archbishop and that he should be imprisoned and his castle razed to the ground gustav at once appealed to pope leo x who approved the excommunication of stensture and called upon christian to enforce it from fifteen seventeen onwards therefore christian was endeavouring by negotiation or otherwise to take possession of sweden at first he had little success excepting that in fifteen eighteen after an attack on stockholm which failed of its object he suggested an interview with stensture demanded hostages for his own safety and then carried them off to denmark bishop god and a young man named gustav eriksson among them in the following year he returned to sweden with a large army of mercenaries on january eighteenth fifteen twenty stensture was defeated in a battle fought on the ice on lake osunden and so severely wounded that he died some weeks after a second battle before upsala left all sweden in gustav's hands except stockholm which was valiantly defended by stensture's widow christina julenschara and the promise of a general amnesty made in christian's name by his general Otta Krumpen, together with the persuasions of God, who had gone over to the king's side, at length prevailed upon her to open the gates. Christian entered Stockholm, and was crowned king of Sweden on Sunday, November 4th, 1520. The event that followed is the blackest in Christian's life. On the Wednesday, during the coronation festivities, the Swedish magnates and the authorities of Stockholm were suddenly summoned into the citadel. Then, Diedrich Slaghoek, a Westphalian follower of the kings, and Jens Andersen, named Beldenach, the Bishop of Ordense, stood forth in the name of Gustav Trolle and demanded reparation for the wrongs which, as they alleged, had been inflicted on him. Christian at once called for the names of those who had signed the act of deposition and committed them to prison, the only exceptions being Bishop Brask of Linköping, who had signed under protest, and another bishop who now joined himself with Trolle as accuser. The following day, November 8th at 9 o'clock, they were brought before a court of twelve ecclesiastics, one of whom was Trolle, who thus became a judge in his own cause. The single question was put to them by Beldenach, whether men who had raised their hands against the Pope and the Holy Roman Church were not heretics. They could give but one answer. Thereupon they were told that they had condemned themselves and were declared guilty of notorious heresy. On the very same day, at noon, they were brought forth into the market-place and there beheaded one by one before the eyes of the citizens the bishops of strengnas and scora were the first to suffer they were followed by the rest of the signatories amongst whom was the father of gustav eriksson afterwards king of sweden and these by others of the principal nobles and citizens who showed their sympathy too plainly until the square ran with blood a spectator counted more than ninety corpses before the day was done the ghastly work was not confined to one time or place the bodies lay where they had fallen for three days after which they were conveyed outside the town and burnt the bodies of stansture and of his young son born since his excommunication being exhumed and thrown upon the pyre it was hoped that this terrible deed which is known as the stockholm bath of blood stockholm's bloodbath had secured sweden to the danes as a matter of fact as it had been said, the union of Kalmar was drowned in it for ever. Fierce revolts broke out everywhere, and before long Sweden was independent under its own King Gustavus. 
Christian was a more successful ruler at home than he had been in Sweden. He was well aware of the evils under which Denmark was groaning, and he was resolved to provide a remedy. As the price of his election to the crown, he had been compelled to accept not only the conditions which had been bound his father, but others even more onerous. One of these gave the judicial power entirely into the hands of the magnates. Another nullified the royal right of conferring nobility. The last of all provided that if he broke his agreement in any particular, quote, then shall all the inhabitants of the kingdom faithfully resist the same without loss of honour and without in any wise, by so doing, breaking their oath of fealty to us, end quote. But from the first, Christian treated his, quote, capitulation, unquote, as a dead letter, and endeavoured in every way to increase the power of the burghers and the peasants. Himself brought up in the household of a burgher, Hans Metzenheim, surnamed Borgbinder, he surrounded himself with advisers of ignoble and often of foreign birth. Siegbrit, the mother of his beautiful Dutch mistress, Dijvike, Diederik Slaghoek, who has been mentioned already, a Malmö merchant named Hans Mikkelsen, and many more. Mother Siegbrit, as she was called, a woman of great capacity, was his chief counsellor in all fiscal and commercial matters. By her advice, he disregarded the Riksrod altogether, subjected the higher orders to taxation, and violated all their most cherished privileges. Nor was it otherwise with the clergy, who soon found that in him they had a master. He levied from them by arbitrary and lawless methods the money which he really needed, but could not obtain in any legal way. Beldenach, in particular, was fleeced unmercifully. Meanwhile, he skilfully availed himself of the jealousy between them and the nobles, who could not forget that many of them, including Archbishop Berger and Bishop Beldenach, were not nobly born in order to overturn the power of both. For the time it seemed as if he had succeeded, and two great collections of laws, the so-called secular and ecclesiastical code, which he put forth in 1521 and 1522 on his own authority, without submitting them to the Riksrod, might seem to have marked the downfall of the aristocratic power. But in little more than a year they had been publicly burned and their author was a fugitive. But Christian's work was not merely destructive. The people at large found in him a careful and wise ruler, who scrutinized every detail of civil life and government, and was never weary of working for their good. His reforms of municipal government were at once elaborate and rigorous. He built great ships and put down piracy. He was made wise with treaties of foreign powers. He extended commercial privileges to his burghers and restricted those of the Hanseatic towns, endeavoring to make Copenhagen the centre of the Baltic trade. And with this object in view, he encouraged Dutch merchants to found houses there, and extended a warm welcome to the rich banking house of the Fugers. He brought Flemish gardeners to Denmark in order that they might teach his people horticulture, and established them in the little island of Armager, where their descendants are to this day. He abolished the old Strandrights and rights of wreck, and decreed that all possible assistance should be given to ships in peril and to shipwrecked mariners. And when the Jutland bishops remonstrated with him, saying that there was nothing in the Bible against wrecking, Christian answered, quote, let the Lord Prelates go back and study the Eighth Commandment. End quote. He caused uniform weights and measures to be used throughout the dominions. He took steps for the improvement of the public roads, and made the first attempt at the creation of a postal system. He abolished the worst evils of serfage, and made provisions for the punishment of cruel masters. His laws on behalf of morals and of public order are enlightened and wise. He abolished the death penalty for witchcraft. He founded a system for the relief of the sick. He did his utmost for the encouragement of learning. The University of Copenhagen, authorized by Pope Martin V in 1419, 
actually founded by Christian I in 1478 with three professors only, of law, theology, and medicine, first became important under Christian II. He founded a Carmelite house in Copenhagen, which was to maintain a graduate in divinity who should lecture daily in the university, and the famous Paul Elier or Eliasson, Paul Heliasson, a student of Erasmus's writings and of Luther's earlier works, and an earnest seeker after Catholic reform, who has been not inaptly styled the Collet of Denmark, came from Elsinore to be the first head lecturer. Christian directed that schools should be opened for the poor throughout his dominions. He exerted himself to provide better school books. He actually went so far as to enact that education should be compulsory for the burghers of Copenhagen and all the other large towns of Denmark. Meanwhile, Christian had been turning his attention to matters strictly ecclesiastical. Here, too, it cannot be said that he was anything but an opportunist, and it would be superfluous to credit him with any very pronounced convictions in favour of the Reformed doctrines. But there is no reason to doubt the earnestness with which he set to work to correct practical abuses. As early as 1517 there had come to Denmark a papal envoy named Giovanni Angelo Archimboldo, afterwards Archbishop of Milan, with a commission to sell indulgences, the right to act under which he purchased from the king for 1100 gulen. It was just at this time when Christian was engaged in negotiations with Sweden, and he resolved to make use of Archimboldo as an intermediary. Soon, however, he discovered that the envoy, apparently in pursuance of secret instructions from the Pope, was negotiating independently with Stensture. Archimboldo managed to escape to Lerbeck with part of his booty, but the king at once gave orders for the seizure of what was left, and found himself in possession of a rich harvest in money and in kind. That this action did not involve any breach with the existing ecclesiastical system is plain from the fact that the victims of the terrible Stockholm's Bath of Blood were put to death by Christian, not as traitors to the king, but as rebels against the Holy See. But he had already gone further than this. In 1519 he wrote to his maternal uncle, Frederick of Saxony, begging him to send to the University of Copenhagen a theologian of the school of Luther and Karlstad. Frederick sent Martin Reinhardt, who arrived at Copenhagen late in 1520, and began preaching in the church of St. Nicholas. But Reinhardt, unfortunately, knew no Danish, and his sermons had to be interpreted, it is said, by Paul Eliasson. The effect was not happy. The sermons lost much of their force, and the preacher's gestures, divorced from his words, seemed grotesque and meaningless. At the next carnival, the canons of St. Mary's took advantage of the fact by dressing up a child and setting him to imitate the preacher. What was more serious, Paul began to find that he had no sympathy with Luther's developed position. Mocked by the people and bereft of his interpreter, Reinhard was sent back to Germany. Christian now endeavoured to attract Luther himself, and, although this proved impossible, Karlstadt came for a short visit. But the Edict of Worms, May 1521, which placed Luther and his followers under the ban of the empire, was a hint too significant to be neglected, and for a time no more is heard of foreign preachers in Copenhagen. Within Denmark itself, however, things were not standing still and Christian's codes of law, already referred to, were full of bold provisions for ecclesiastical reform. The monasteries were again subjected to episcopal visitation, clerical non-residence, which, partly owing to local difficulties, was commoner in Norway and Denmark than elsewhere, was stringently forbidden, to make an end of the ignorant priest-readers, Lassepraster, of whom the Danish church was full, no candidate for holy orders was to be ordained unless he had studied at the university and had shown that he understood and could explain the holy gospel and epistle in Danish. The clergy were not to acquire landed property or receive inheritances. 
quote, at least until they will follow the precept of St. Paul, who in his first epistle to Timothy counsels them to be the husband of one wife and will live in the holy state of matrimony as their ancestors did, end quote. The state which the bishops were accustomed to keep up was forbidden. In journeying, quote, they shall ride or travel in their litters, that the people may know them from other doctors. But they shall not be preceded by fife and drum to the mockery of the holy church, end quote. The spiritual courts were no longer to have cognizance of questions of property. Most radical change of all, a new supreme tribunal was to be set up at Rochilda by royal authority alone, consisting of, quote, four doctors or masters well learned in ecclesiastical and imperial law, end quote. The decisions of which, as well ecclesiastical as civil, were to be final, the appeal to the Pope being abolished. But Christian's new code never came into operation. His position was already one of great difficulty, and the toils were fast closing round him. He was in bad odour at Rome, partly on account of his attempted reforms, partly because of the three bishops whom he had slain in Sweden. For Hemingard had been put to death not long after the massacre of Stockholm, in spite of his loyalty to the king. This last matter was arranged without much difficulty. The nuncio Giovanni Francesco di Potenza, whom Leo X had sent to Denmark, declared Christian innocent and found a scapegoat in Diedrich Slagok, now archbishop-elect of Lund. For this and other crimes he was condemned to death and burnt on January 22, 1522. But there were other difficulties which could not be met in this way. The citizens of Lerbeck had declared war and were soon devastating Bornholm and threatening Copenhagen. Christian was embroiled in a hopeless contest in Sweden. He had offended his father's brother, Frederick of Schleswig-Holstein, by obtaining the investiture of the duchy at the hands of Charles V, which he now abandoned by the Treaty of Bordesholm, August. And now, when everything was against him abroad, the seething discontent at home came to a head. Late in 1522, the nobles of Scherland broke out in open rebellion. To meet this, Christian gathered together an army of peasants and summoned a council of nobles, Heredag, to meet at Kalumborg. The nobles and bishops from Jutland failed to put in an appearance, alleging that the wind and time of year made it impossible. Thereupon, he summoned them and the representatives of the commons to meet in a national assembly, Riksdag, at Aarhus. But it was too late. The Jutlanders had already assembled at Viborg, renounced their allegiance to him, and proclaimed Frederick King, putting forth at the same time a statement of grievances, March 1523. A letter in which they communicated the news to Christian reached him early in the following month. The case was far from desperate. Norway had not declared against him. Most of the islands were still his, and many of their chief citadels. The peasants were devoted to him, and so were many excellent leaders, chief amongst them being the brave Admiral Zuren Norby. But Christian had lost heart. Every day, some renounced their allegiance, and an alliance which Frederick had contracted with Sweden and Lerbeck filled him with alarm. On April 13th, he left his capital and embarked for Flanders, with his young queen and his three little children, and spent the next nine years in exile, often under great hardships. He continued vigorously to dispute Frederick's throne, but without success, in spite of the fact that he invoked the aid of his powerful brother-in-law, and at length, late in 1529, was formally reconciled to the Roman communion. Two years later, he desired to enter into communication with Frederick, and gave himself into the hands of his uncle's commander, Knut Jülenschana, on a safe conduct. But in spite of this, he was thrown into the dungeons of Sündeborg, where he remained for seventeen years, 
part of the time with no companion but a half-witted Norwegian dwarf, and he only left Sunderborg for a less rigorous captivity elsewhere, which endured until his death in 1559. Frederick's new position was no happy one. For years his dominions were torn asunder by civil war, and Christian was still recognized as the lawful king by the Pope, the Emperor, and the Lutherans. The new king owed everything to those who had elected him, and concession was naturally the order of the day. To Norway he granted that henceforward it would be a free elective monarchy, as Denmark and Sweden were. To the nobles he made even greater concessions than Christian II had made at his coronation promising amongst other things that none but noble-born Danes should be appointed to bishoprics in the future, whilst, as regards the church, he bound himself, quote, not to permit any heretic, Luther's disciple or any other, to preach or teach, either openly or publicly, against the holy faith, against the most holy father, the pope or the church of Rome, end quote. This last promise was far more than once repeated subsequently, in return for subsidies granted by the clergy. But both parties must soon have come to realize that a change was coming, whether they would or no. And although the actual settlement did not take place till after his death, the reign of Frederick I saw the real overthrow of the Church of Denmark. Although the causes which brought this about were political rather than religious, they were not entirely so, and there were already not a few in Denmark who were propagating the new doctrines. Paul Eliasson had indeed found himself unable to go the whole length with the Lutherans, and before long received from them the nickname of Paul Turncoat, Povel Vendekova, for his alleged instability. But Paul was neither a coward nor a renegade. He is almost the only representative in the north of that class of earnest and enlightened men who desired reform, both practical and doctrinal, without any general loosening of the ecclesiastical system. It is true that after Christian II turned him out of his lectureship in 1522, a rich canonry was founded for him by the bishop Lagerurner of Rochilde, the duties of which were to teach in the university and preach to the people. But he had lost his former office in consequence of a bold public denunciation of the king's cruelty, and he was not more flexible in the hands of Frederick I in 1526 when that monarch tried to make him a Lutheran propagandist. Yet, although he refused to throw in his lot with the extremists and became more decided in his opposition to them as their action became more decided, he never ceased to inveigh against the corruptions of the old order. He translated selected tracts by Luther into Danish and asserted many of his earlier theses, even whilst he condemned that teacher's later actions and his last effort and peacemaking, his Christian Reconciliation and Accord, written about 1534, is an earnest plea for peace on the basis of the historic system of the Church, with services in Danish, communion in both kinds, marriage of the clergy, and the like. But although Paul could go no further than this, there were many of his disciples who went much farther. Chief among them was Hans Tausen, known as the Danish Luther, the son of a peasant of Fien, Born 1594, he had joined the Johannite priory of Antwerschkov, where his abilities soon won recognition, and he was sent abroad. After studying and lecturing at Rostock, he was nominated professor of theology at Copenhagen. But his prior, willing to see him still better equipped, sent him abroad again, and he now studied at Cologne and Louvain. Thence he passed to Wittenberg, 1523, where he was listening to Luther's teaching with avidity when the alarmed prior summoned him home in 1524 and imprisoned him. 
After a time, he was transferred to the Johannite house at Viboy, in order that the prior there, the learned Petter Jensen, might show him the error of his ways. He soon won Jensen's confidence and was permitted to preach to the people after Vespers. His preaching created a great sensation, but soon caused the prior to admonish and warn him. So one day at the end of his sermon, Tausen threw himself upon the protection of his hearers left the monastery and took up his abode in the house of one of the chief citizens here he was joined by jurgen sardelin who had studied with him under luther and whose sister he presently married and the two continued their irregular preaching under the eye and in spite of the prohibition of the bishop jurgen fries the same kind of thing was going on at malma where under the protection of the burgomaster jurgen cook the monnier munter one klaus mortensen the cooper tunderbinder had begun preaching in the open air until the people rose and insisted that one of the churches should be placed at their disposal and the movement was spreading elsewhere in fifteen twenty four there was printed a danish version of the new testament which is commonly attributed to hans mikkelsen former burgomaster of malmo now a fugitive with the dethroned king and which may be in part his work it was imported into denmark in very large quantities and was largely read by the people in spite of episcopal prohibition until its place was taken five years later by a far better version this was the work of the gentle christian pedersen known as the father of danish literature he had been a canon of lund but followed christian the second into exile and became a convinced lutheran he returned to denmark in fifteen thirty one and spent the rest of his life till his death in fifteen fifty four in literary work for the cause of the reform end of section sixty three